Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 92-88-94, Clarence Victor against Nebraska. Number 92-90-49, uh, Alfred Arthur Sandoval against California Consolidated. Uh, Mr. Weber. Thank you, Mr. Justice, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue presented in this case is whether the Nebraska Supreme Court failed to uh, properly apply the constitutional principles set forth in Cage versus Louisiana to a jury instruction in Nebraska containing virtually identical language. And the facts of this case specific to the issue of the reasonable doubt instruction are uh, whether or not the defendant, Clarence Victor, the petitioner, was properly convicted of first-degree murder and whether or not it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Victor killed purposely and with deliberate and premeditated malice. The responsibility for the death of the victim in this case is not at issue. With respect to the specific instruction, I, I feel it is most simple to break it down into two basic parts. The instruction given in, in uh, Mr. Victor's trial, NJI 14.08, is found at the joint appendix at page 11. As I see it, Mr. Why, ordinarily we say instruction should be considered as a whole. Why, why do you feel you should break this down into two parts? Well, I do believe uh, the prior decisions of this court do warrant looking at the instruction as a whole, but I think the plain meaning of the instruction, uh, also consistent with the prior decisions of this court, would be to see two basic parts, one being the burden for conviction, the other being the burden for acquittal. And in this particular instruction, I see those two parts coming out in the plain meaning given to it. Uh, with respect to that instruction, I would draw a line after the... Uh, the sentence you may find an accused guilty upon the strong probabilities of the case, provided such probabilities are strong enough to exclude any doubt of his guilt that is reasonable. And I believe the following sentence to the end of that instruction is the burden in order to acquit. And as I've said, I believe the burden to convict in this case, similar to Encage, is too low, and the burden to acquit too high. Uh, in this particular instance, with this instruction, a conviction is allowed on the strong probabilities of the case and to a moral certainty. As, as determined... Uh, by prior decisions of this court of strong probabilities, and I, I believe that the plain meaning of the instruction, that, that initial part with respect to conviction, the strong probabilities read with the other portions of the conviction-related portion of the instruction allow conviction on something that is tantamount to a civil preponderance of the evidence standard. You say you do agree that this instruction should be read as a whole? Yes, I do. And uh, do, you, do you think that our decision in Holland against the United States uh, lays down the same standard as it was laid down in Cage? Well, as recognized, the standard has changed somewhat, and uh, specifically well, with respect we, to Boyd. Well, but I, I mean the standard as to the contents of the instruction. Maybe you can't separate them. But uh, Boyd dealt with reasonable understanding. Yes. And uh, other, other than that, do you think that Holland and Cage lay down the, the same test? Uh, I, believe, I believe so in the sense that, uh, as recognized, I believe uh, in, in Estelle, if not uh, also in uh, recognized previously in Franklin, there might be a new test when it comes to interpretation of, of jury instructions, and specifically in this case with respect to reasonable doubt. Well, why would there be a... a, a a new test in interpreting an instruction on reasonable doubt. Well, as you found in uh, taking Winship in conjunction with Sullivan, just decided by the court last year, the concept of reasonable doubt and the burden of the government to, to prove uh, reasonable doubt, uh, or to prove conviction beyond a reasonable doubt is so fundamental that I believe it would be a, a recognized exception to basic rules of interpretation. 
Where, what, what authority do you have for that proposition? Well, again, I refer only to Sullivan in the sense that it is such a fundamental uh, guarantee with respect to due process, the fundamental right of trial by jury, and relieving the state of its burden, I believe you specifically recognized in, uh, in uh, Sandstrom and in, in Franklin that relief of the state's burden is a, a fundamental violation of due process. Yes, but uh, why does it follow from that that a different standard should be applied to uh, judging a jury instruction on that subject than a jury instruction on some other subject? Have we ever suggested that? No, I don't believe so, and I spoke in error with respect to interpretation of other instructions. I believe that if there is a standard, it is the plain meaning standard, which would be equally applicable to all instructions. We do have the strong... However, is, uh, is this instruction routinely used in the courts of Nebraska? It is not, Your Honor. Following the uh, decision in Cage, the, uh, specifically uh, with my own experience, the Douglas County District Court, Omaha, Nebraska, that county, uh, ceased using the instruction for the most part. Uh, there were subsequent decisions by certain courts, uh, specifically the Supreme Court of the State of Nebraska, distinguishing uh, the objectionable instruction uh, from uh, that given in Cage, and uh, I can uh, note in all candor that some district judges then did recommence using the instructions, uh, the instruction that is objectionable here. I think it's fairly safe to say that because of the state of the uncertainty with respect to the United States District Court for the District of Nebraska holding the distinction by the Nebraska Supreme Court invalid, that most, if not all, of the courts in the state of Nebraska no longer use the defective instruction and rather use the instruction that is referred to as as um, it, it's contained within the appendix to uh, counsel for Sandoval's brief at page B23, uh, NJI second uh, criminal uh, instruction 2.0, which uh, was uh, passed in 1992. Were these in, was the instruction in this case routinely given before our decision in Cage? Yes, I think it would be safe to say it was. However, there, there is some authority from the Eighth Circuit specifically uh, with respect to using strong probabilities language up to approximately 20 years ago, questioning that language, I understand that the strong probabilities of the case language has been approved in and of itself and other decisions, I believe, in Dunbar. However, uh, it is not my argument that this instruction is to be looked at uh, under uh, a microscope and looking at poison pills. I understand that is not the test. But with respect to the instruction taken as a whole and allowing uh, conviction in this case, uh, based upon the strong probabilities of the case, uh, that is basically allowing a jury to convict on a possibility of guilt, which of course is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I think taking again the entire uh, portion of the instruction that I believe relates to conviction uh, in context, it reaffirms the jury's ability to find guilt on a civil or what is more akin to a civil preponderance standard, and that specifically is the sentence that follows, excuse me, that precedes the strong probabilities language, and that, and I quote, you may find an accused guilty, uh, excuse me, you may be convinced of the truth of a fact beyond a reasonable doubt and yet be fully aware that possibly you may be mistaken. In my mind, that reaffirms, in the plain meaning, reaffirms a jury's ability to, to convict on a civil preponderance standard. You take that hand in hand with the moral certainty language contained in Cage. Uh, it even allows uh, the, the worst possible of scenarios that a jury can convict, in this case, find first-degree murder in spite of or on evidence other than that presented at trial. The, the respondent adheres to the distinction drawn by the Nebraska Supreme Court. It adheres to a rationale that uh, I believe the federal court for the District of Nebraska indicated called for an exercise in mental gymnastics. Uh, 
it, it, it belies logic that a juror reading this instruction would not reasonably likely, uh, be reasonably likely to misapply constitutional pr principles and allow conviction on something more akin to the civil preponderance standard. With respect to the second portion of the instruction, acquittal is not permitted, and perhaps this is the most heinous violation of the instruction, unless reasonable doubt is equivalent to a substantial doubt. And I submit that very first sentence of what I have carved out to be the second portion or the acquittal portion of the, the instruction defines as the only real and true definition of reasonable doubt. Well, counsel, that would, if it stood alone, certainly uh, come pretty close to cage. But uh, the balance of the sentence explains that uh, the reasonable doubt um, has to be as distinguished from a doubt arising from a mere possibility, bare imagination, or fanciful conjecture. And viewed with that, uh, perhaps it isn't uh, a misstatement. I understand what you're saying, Justice O'Connor, with respect to reading the entire sentence, but I think what we're looking at here is a continuum with mere possibility or fanciful conjecture at one end, mm -hmm. and we can't ignore the language that I believe you omitted in, in your question, and that is the substantial doubt. The substantial doubt, as you noted, is concededly violative of Cage. We have mere possibility at one end, substantial doubt on the other. Well, I'm not sure it is. It was included in Cage, but it isn't clear to me that that standing alone would have been found to be a violation of Cage. I tend to agree with you. I don't think we look at these in a vacuum, and we do not look at these standing alone, much as the respondent has attempted to do, as well as the amici in this case, looking at each particular term. But when you take all the terms standing as a whole, the graver and more important transactions of life, the moral certainty language, the strong probabilities of the case language, and the actual and substantial doubt, I don't think there's any question that it was reasonably likely that the jury in this particular case misapplied constitutional principles and deprived the petitioner of due process. I had anticipated your question to be that perhaps the fact that the substantial doubt language refers to the evidence, that that somehow salvages this instruction. Indeed, that's what the respondent would have you believe. The simple response is that it's irrelevant whether or not the basis is the evidence or, as moral certainty would suggest, something other than the evidence or independent of the evidence. If the doubt is too high in order to acquit a particular defendant, it is still unconstitutional. I believe, again, with respect to the substantial doubt language, uh, you take in conjunction the sentence that allows the jury to consider the fact that they can convict and still be aware that they're possibly mistaken, uh, reaffirms in the jury's mind that the standard is not as high, they may convict on a strong probability and not on a reasonable doubt. I feel it necessary, uh, because it was addressed within the, uh, the briefs, uh, to respond to uh, allegations made with respect to procedural bar and retroactivity in this case. Indeed, uh, the issue of retroactivity was, was presented in the issue that uh, certiorari was granted. With respect to procedural bar, I think there are several reasons why we are properly before this court. Uh, the merits were indeed addressed by the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court, and under Michigan versus Long, I believe we're properly before this court. Also, uh, with respect to a distinction uh, found in Teague, uh, with respect to Harris versus Reed, I don't believe there's any ambiguity in the opinion of the Nebraska Supreme Court concerning the merits of this case. Indeed, uh, most recent uh, opinion on this particular instruction, State versus Cook, uh, Westlaw uh, site uh, out of Nebraska from last month indicates that uh, in spite of this court granting certiorari in this case and in spite of the federal district court for the District of Nebraska holding the distinction uh, 
uh, drawn by the uh, state of Nebraska, the Supreme Court of the state of Nebraska, they would adhere to their distinction drawn between this defective instruction and the defective instruction in Louisiana. And I believe, again, properly before this court. Uh, I need to point out uh, as the... In this case, we, we just didn't, didn't have the uh, use of the phrase moral certainty by itself. It was also uh, specifically opposed to an absolute or mathematical certainty. Don't you think that uh, that eliminates whatever confusion might otherwise exist? What kind of a certainty would you describe uh, as being required? Absolute certainty? Not at all, Your Honor. Obviously, it's well, the distinction drawn. There has to be some between mathematical certainty... And moral certainty. And that certainty, which is the only certainty that can be had pertaining to human conduct. Moral the problem, excuse me, the problem, Your Honor, is that moral certainty doesn't mean today what it did at the time that the instruction was passed. And as Sandoval count, mm, Council maybe. will point out to you, the instruction means something totally different today. Just to me, uh, maybe, maybe it does not uh, uh, have only that meaning. Maybe it has required another and indeed quite contrary meaning. But at least when it's used in a charge, that that opposes it to mathematical certainty. I mean, if I just said moral certainty, then I can understand the argument, but if it says, you know, you, 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 it must be to a moral certainty, not a mathematical certainty, what other possible meaning could it have than, than the old meaning of moral certainty? That's the problem, Justice Scalia. It has several different meanings. It is certainly possible that someone will properly interpret the term moral certainty in and of itself to mean something that it is supposed to mean. Is it reasonably likely, taking that instruction in context, and meaning moral certainty is the same as a civil preponderance standard, which is almost what the instruction says? It's your burden to show that it has to be reasonably likely that it would be misunderstood, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yes, it is. Well, in, well, what line of reasoning would say that moral certainty means roughly likely civil pre preponderance standard? Is that what you're saying? Means? The only thing I'm saying is that, as, as the prior decisions of this Court have noted, we are not necessarily to parse language and, and view the particular terms under a microscope, and I'm saying it is certainly possible, indeed, uh, reasonably likely, that a juror looking at the moral certainty language and noting that they can convict on the strong probabilities of the case that those are tantamount to similar or same meanings, and it's reasonably likely that they will be given that meaning by a jury. So you say that because of the juxtaposition of moral certainty and uh, strong probabilities, that, that that gives meaning to moral certainty? To, to me, I believe it does, and I believe it does to the common juror. And I believe that's what we need to, to focus upon here. Obviously, uh, as I think is noted in the briefs, the court and certainly counsel have focused upon these terms uh, ad nauseum. Inordinately. <laughs> yes. And, and the problem is that, that we maybe have removed ourselves too far from what the common juror on the street is going to think when they look at this instruction. And if we're to do the best we can and look at the instruction as a whole, I don't think there's any question when you look at what I submit as the conviction language and, and that takes the graver and more important transactions of life language, the moral certainty language, and the strong probability language taken together. It certainly on a continuum pushes the standard much, much closer to what would be the same as a civil uh, greater weight of the evidence. The reaffirmation that you can find a defendant guilty by the greater weight of the evidence, read greater weight of the evidence, and still be aware of the possibility that you may be mistaken, I think is consistent with what a reasonable juror would look at. Well, wait, I, I, certainly don't, I certainly don't agree with that as to the first sentence, as to the such a doubt as would cause a reasonable and prudent person in one of the graver and more important transactions of life to pause and hesitate before taking the representative facts as true. Are you saying you only pause or hesitate when the fact is... When, you only pause or hesitate when the fact is true by a bare preponderance of the evidence? 
No, that's no. not what I'm so saying. So I think it takes uh, much more certainty than that to eliminate uh, any hesitation on my part. Certainly, but another reading of the instruction would be that possibly the decision to acquit in this case could be grave, and thus, again, raising the burden of the defendant unconstitutionally. No, I, I don't understand what you're saying. If I take that first, first sentence to define reasonable doubt in such a way, say, the kind of doubt that would cause you to pause. Well, boy, I, I, I pause at some somewhat well short of, of uh, preponderance. But I also think the more clear definition of reasonable doubt provided in the instruction is the one at, at the conclusion of the instruction, that being a reasonable doubt is an actual and substantial doubt. Okay, I'll give you that one, but you were trying to use the first sentence as supporting your case. I'm only... It's something you have to overcome rather than something you can use. I understand I only look at it in the context that if we read the instruction as a whole, there are certain possibilities of juror interpretation. And uh, with those possibilities, it's reasonably likely that a jury would, would uh, misapply constitutional principles. Uh, I would like to save a little time for rebuttal. Accordingly, I would like to uh, conclude with uh, portions that I think in, in context we need to look at. This case is unique in that certiorari was denied on direct appeal, and this issue was properly presented to the court at that time. And uh, if, in fact, we somehow fall between a Griffith-style uh, application of the rules of this court or a Teague problem, I do not feel, first of all, that we should be in a Teague-related situation. It is more akin to Griffin in that we have satisfied the requirements that the issue was presented on direct appeal. Uh, the state concedes that it was presented on direct appeal. And, uh, in fact, with respect to the uh, default issue, the state did not object on procedural basis in its uh, op cert. Uh, in this case. With respect to Teague, we certainly would fall under the second exception where uh, fundamental fairness of trial is, is compromised in that the conviction would be undermined or uh, would, uh, in this case, uh, would diminish the likelihood of obtaining uh, a conviction. In this, in this case, we have a fundamental violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth due process violations as well as the Fifth uh, uh, Amendment uh, guarantees, uh, as noted in Winship. Uh, that the uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is required, and also the Sixth Amendment trial by jury guarantees that were noted uh, within Sandstrom and Franklin. I'd like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Weber. Mr. Miltop? Is it Miltop or Miltop? Miltop. Miltop, Mr. Miltop. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> Regarding the Sandoval instruction, uh, the first point I would like to emphasize uh, is that this instruction lacks much lacks any of the potentially corrective language found in its progenitor, the extended discussion of reasonable doubt found in Commonwealth v. Shaw, and the corrective language found in the current Massachusetts version of, uh, of uh, defining reasonable doubt, the updated Shaw version uh, found at page 18 of Appendix B. Um, of course, you would say at the time of Shaw it was not corrective at all. That, uh, yeah, at the time exactly. Shaw, at the time that Shaw the was average penned, juror at the time of Shaw under, understood what moral certainty meant. Exactly, Your Honor. And you don't time, really think that, do you? It was a technical term even then, wasn't it? Wasn't it a term of uh, moral philosophy? Uh, uh, Your Honor, you're, you're raising an interesting point uh, as more as to the scope of... Uh, American education, then, as to whether it was a technical versus non-technical term, and my my uh, my my belief is that anybody who who knew the, what the phrase meant at all uh, knew what it meant in the in in uh, in the terms that Justice Shaw penned it. Uh, whether it was a term that was oblivious to uh, 
2% or 92% of the American public. I, I don't know. But the dictionary I'm, definition is different. You gave us a lot of contemporaneous definitions. What about in the 1850s? What did the dictionaries say? Did they say something different? Oh, y yes, Your Honor. Um, and as we traced from our from petitioner's opening brief through the reply brief, the common meaning of moral certainty, as reflected in lexicographical sources, uh, meant moral certainty in terms of the highest degree of certainty that you could, have, you, you could attain based on empirical evidence from Daniel Webster's uh, Noah Webster's first dictionary in, in 1827 through approximately the turn of the century. Then, at the turn of the century, dictionaries began having, uh, including definitions or substituting definitions, much more consistent with the uh, current definitions. Uh, that being um, probable, uh, strong probability, um, for practical purpose as opposed to legal purposes. Those are phrases are drawn from the 1906 version quoted in the, uh, in the reply brief. So the transformation occurred somewhere around the turn of the century. Um, it's been and yet in so many model instructions, the term appears well past the turn of the century. That's certainly true, Your Honor, and I think that brings up, um, that brings up the fundamental problem in this case, where lawyers and judges as law-trained people hear this phrase as reiterating what they, they have learned since the beginning of law school and throughout their practice, while the lay public uses it, understands it in a very different manner. And might that manner be favorable to defendants, and might it not be that the defendants' desire to have it explains how it continues to persist despite what you see the shift in definitions after 1900? Um, I think that is uh, a very unlikely possibility. Uh, how, how, how reasonable, how sensible would it be for a, de for a defense attorney to, having scanned the dictionary definitions, uh, uh, contained in, or reviewed in petitioner's opening brief, a fairly extensive, uh, exhaustive I, review not, of American I'm not dictionary. sure that that's what the defense attorneys are doing, but they're still asking for moral certainty language. No, nobody asked for it, Your Honor. I don't believe. I believe that it's given as a matter of historical uh, inertia. Why, why did, didn't, didn't California just make a decision to preserve that language after a rather extensive review of the instruction? Uh, I th if Your Honor is referring to, referring to the Calgic review uh, in the mid-1980s, um, that review went so far as to insist of asking lawyers and judges whether they saw any reason for changing the instruction. By analogy, if, for example, a president uh, conducted a survey of whether health care reform, reform was needed by a survey of pharmacists and physicians, that would not carry a lot of credibility. The question is whether the, what, what the instruction means to the public who are serving on juries, not what it means to the lawyers and judges who, who are immersed in it. How many people of the, what percent of the general public do you think frequently use the phrase moral certainty in their conversation? Your Honor, I don't believe that that's the test. Well, I, I didn't ask you whether that was the test. Yes. I asked you what percent you thought used the expression. Um, You're perfectly entitled to say you don't know. I don't know what percent use it in their, in their uh, ordinary conversation, but I do know that there's a high likelihood that most people hear it used in contemporary parlance in the newspapers um, as indicated by our contemporary references. Uh, in Petitioner's Brief, we, we survey a number of usages of, of most, mor both moral certainty and moral evidence in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Sacramento Bee, so that it's familiar to people. This, the, the, current, the usage that's consistent with the dictionary sources is familiar, is familiar to people. It's familiar to the readers of the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Sacramento Bee. 
But you're not required to read those newspapers to get on a jury. No. No, Your Honor, but... What, we, what I'm trying to suggest is what is, the, what is the most likely explanation that a juror, a California juror, Sandoval's jurors, understood right. for moral certainty? It would have to do that from its context, wouldn't it? And, and although I, I happen to agree with you that, that the word has acquired a different meaning, I'm not sure it has eliminated the original meaning. Uh, some, some modern dictionaries continue to use that original meaning, don't they, as one of the possible meanings of, of moral certainty. I, I disagree with that as a factual matter, Your Honor. There's, only, there's no American dictionary which uses it, uses it consistent with uh, reasonable doubt, and only the Oxford English Dictionary, which is well-known for preserving historical meanings, um, is consistent with contemporary usage. Respondent... Maybe that means it's a better, better dictionary. Uh, uh, Webster's third gives us one of the meanings capable of being judged as good or evil. Uh, this is a meaning of moral. This is uh, the word you're looking up in all of these. Moral, capable of being judged as good or evil in terms of principles of right and wrong action, resulting from or belonging to human character, conduct, or intentions. And that's what moral, when you use moral in the, in the phrase moral certainty, it means the certainty that pertains to judgment of human actions. And I take that to be uh, an indication of that definition. Um, I, I was more, Petitioner Sandoval focused more on those dictionary definitions which specifically took the phrase moral certainty as a phrase, rather than simply the word moral certainty. Oh, well, but you couldn't expect every dictionary to, to, to single out the phrase moral certainty. Most of them don't, don't have that phrase at all. Seems to me you have to look up the word moral and, and see how it would be used with certainty. How, how would you explain the, the concept that used to be described by the word moral certainty? Well, that, that question is... If you wanted to explain to a juror, I don't want mathematical certainty. You can never have mathematical certainty. I mean, deciding whether somebody committed a crime is not like 2 plus 2 or, uh, equals 4. You can never be mathematically certain. Now, how would you put the fact that you're not asking for mathematical certainty? You might well say, you want moral certainty. I would say that. You want moral certainty. I would put it exactly as, um, well, first of all, there are any number of possible definitions for consistent with the concept of reasonable doubt. There's no one true way to do it. What I would recommend as the simplest solution to the California quandary would be to take the rendition given by Professor Shapiro in her article in 38 Hastings Law Review, where she took, uh, uh, set forth in full in uh, petitioner's brief at uh, uh, a footnote on approximately page 35, where she took the Webster instruction. She's a, a historian and rhetoricist at Cal, and immersed herself in the history of what reasonable doubt was supposed to mean, and then rendered the Webster instruction into contemporary uh, English. And it starts off with some of the exact phrases that Your Honor used. I agree with that, that 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 would be a better idea. Yes. But, but the, the, the question before us here is whether it was likely that not doing that, likely that not doing that misled the jury. Now, in this instruction, the word moral was used a couple of times, not just in the, in the, in the phrase moral certainty. Uh, earlier, the judge said, it is not a mere possible doubt because everything relating to human affairs and depending on moral evidence is open to some possible or imaginary doubt. Yes. How could you possibly make it clearer that the word moral means pertaining to human action? What, what do you think the jury thought moral evidence meant? Your Honor, um, it pertains to human action when... Uh, uh, a civil jury uh, returns a verdict of liability. It pertains to a human action when a, a, a fact finder returns a, a, a finding according to clear and convincing evidence. We want to make sure that, our, that the criminal juries are, are know, know that they're, uh, they ha they're dealing with human actions, of course, but the standard of certainty has to be way up there, 
at the top of the ladder of evidentiary, of evidentiary certainty. Well, I, I agree with you, but I, you're making the argument that the only meaning this jury could have taken, or it is more likely than not, that, that, that the jury took moral certainty not to mean that degree of certainty that, which is the highest degree we can have in matters of human affairs. Yes. And I say that it is very likely that they took it to mean that, since earlier the judge refers to, to moral evidence. And in that context, the only thing it could have meant to the jury is evidence relating to human action. And moral certainty means that certainty, which is certainty relating to human action. I don't know why you can just pluck out the, the use of moral one time in the instruction and not see how it was described earlier. Well, Your Honor... Relating to human affairs, everything relating to human affairs and depending on moral evidence is open to some possible doubt. And then he goes on to say, you must be convinced to a moral certainty. My goodness, after that sentence, uh, a juror should understand that that's what he means. Well, I question whether a juror hearing that would be able to distinguish whether the juror's level of certainty had to rise merely to, say, clear and convincing evidence or had to rise above that to the utmost certainty. That, that sentence that, you, rose, that you, you, you read is equally consistent with both. And under that circumstance, because the, the dictionary definitions, the current usage is more consistent with clear and convincing evidence than it is with utmost certainty. Moral is, 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 is susceptible of, 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 of both meanings, yes, but, but certainty is not susceptible of both meanings. When you combine the word moral with the word certainty, it means, it means that, deg that highest degree of assurance you can have in matters of human, human conduct. Well, see, that, there's where we have a fundamental disagreement, because if you take any American dictionary that does have the phrase moral certainty defined in it, moral certainty and a definition, it's clearly inconsistent with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's only consistent with clear and convincing evidence. Respondents don't contend otherwise. They don't contend that any of the dictionary definitions of moral certainty or any of the usages of moral certainty are consistent with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They fight elsewhere. The, the OED would give that meaning. You, I thought you acknowledged that. Uh, I, I, I certainly did. And I, you, you don't count that as a dictionary. I count that as the most, as the most widely recognized dictionary. It's too good. To preserve historical uh, meanings at the expense of current American usage. At the expense of current American? I thought they yes, gave American they, usage. They, they purport to give American usage. Pardon me? They purport to give American usage. And I think Your Honor is exactly correct in using the word purport, because we have, <laughs> we have 12 American, diction, diction, American published dictionaries giving definitions of moral certainty inconsistent with the standard that we all, we all know in our minds is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we have one venerable English dictionary, um, everybody enjoys reading the, uh, the OED, consistent with the historical meaning. The question is, how are jurors in California, in Los Angeles, are, when they re read moral certainty, are they go is it going to resound in their minds as consistent with how they hear it in the LA Times, how it's read, or are they going to say, Maybe it's meant the way John Locke meant it 150 or 300 years ago. I suppose, I suppose it depends on the context. I mean, the, the word moral, uh, moral in, in one of the dictionaries you cite, moral is defined as sexually virtuous. Now, I don't think when, when a juror in, in this context hears moral certainty, I don't think the juror thinks it has anything to do with being sexually virtuous. Uh, it, it's the context that determines its meaning, and when the context is following a sentence that says everything relating to human affairs and depending on moral evidence is open to some possible doubt, and therefore you must have a moral certainty. 
I think that's a quite different context from just coming up to somebody and saying, moral certainty. Uh, you'd get a quite different answer. If I may, Your Honor, I believe that by referring to, if you refer to usage and definitions of the word moral, separate except from the phrase moral certainty, there are 22 different definitions, nuances, subtleties of the word moral, including sexually virtuous, which have nothing to do with the context of the reasonable doubt instruction here. Each time, each indication that we have, and Sandoval is not conjuring these things up. Sandoval has had his nose in the dictionary and his nose in newspapers trying to find out how people are actually use these, these phrases. Moral certainty has its own meaning, meaning to, which has evolved today. The point I would like to emphasize is that this instruction is defective not only because of that phrase. Cage didn't purport to um, uh, constitute an exhaustive, exhaustive uh, uh, list of constitutional defects. The phrase moral evidence in this case compounds the problem from moral certainty for the following reason. Moral evidence, as currently understood, as opposed to uh, its uh, historical uh, usage, um, means, according to uh, the same dictionaries that we've been consulting, uh, pertaining to character, pertaining to tendencies of human nature. When juxtaposed with those aspects of the, of morals, of the definitions of moral certainty, which are such as based on a strong likelihood rather than on solid evidence, it invites the juror to, to use their view of what, what, what's the moral character of Sandoval here. What can I piece together about Sandoval's moral character based on the moral evidence involved to supplement the prosecutor's factual evidence? The, would, it, would, it, would, it, would it have been all right for the judge simply to refuse to charge, as is, I take it in some jurisdictions that's done? Would that have met in constitutional requirements? Your Honor, that... The answer to that question is not necessary to the decision here, but the, uh, um, the overwhelming weight, 48 out of the 53 jurisdictions surveyed, do give a definition of reasonable doubt. What is the definition that's satisfactory? Well, Your Honor, I'd say 43 out of the, uh, out of the, 43 out of the definitions contained in Petitioner's Exhibit B from around the country are satisfactory. A good one is found in Petitioner's uh, brief at uh, footnote 26. That's where Professor Shapiro uh, takes the language of Shaw and translates it into the contemporary uh, American uh, May idiom. May I ask you about that? It's the, unless you've reached the highest level of certainty of the defendant's guilt that is possible to have about things that happen in the real world. That, you think that, is there any court has ever said the standard is that high? Well, Your Honor, my understanding is that's what this court has said. When in, uh, in Winship, this, uh, this court said that uh, it, would be, it would be wrong, it would be a violation of due process for, uh, people to, for people to be convicted except on utmost certainty. Now, utmost might be overstating it. What if a juror said to another juror, I really am convinced the man did it, but uh, I'd be even more convinced if we had seen it on television at the same time, but we didn't. I'd really be positive then. I, don't have any, I really don't have any doubt, but I'd be more convinced then. Well, could he convict or acquit? Would it be constitutional to, uh, to, to convict on, if an instruction had been given sort of tracking your honest phrasings? Yeah. Um, it would be constitutional because you uh, uh, had the removal of doubt in, in, involved and some... But you don't really mean to suggest you can never convict if you can conceive of a case which would be even more convincing than the one you've seen. I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't understand the question. Do you mean to say that you may never convict if you can conceive of a set of, of evidence that would be even more convincing than the evidence that was actually presented. Certainly not, Your Honor. We're, we're dealing that's with... what this instruction says. Footnote 26. 
There must be the highest degree of certainty that the human mind can reach in the oh, in oh, about area. things that happen, about things that happen in, in the world. Um, and realistically, the, um, we have three standards of proof: preponderance, clear and convincing evidence, and proof of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. These are ranges of of certainty. There's no, we don't, there's no mathematics here. One is fifty-one percent. One is seventy-five percent. What is the top one? 90, 99, 100? It, it, not 100, is it? Of course not. And it's foolish to assign numbers. There's an interesting discussion by Judge Posner in uh, U.S. v. Hall, 854 Fed Second, about how badly uninstructed jurors uh, understand the concept of reasonable doubt when they're asked to put numbers, numbers on it. It's what he characterizes as ridiculously low, but let's stay away from numbers. Let's make sure that a constitutionally correct instruction distinguishes for a jury between preponderance of the evidence, not good enough, Clear and convincing evidence, still not good enough, makes, leads them up to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The Webster instruction in Massachusetts does, that, does just that. Up. In, in our opinion in Holland, uh, Justice Clark's opinion gives strong support to the idea that you're better off not defining reasonable doubt. Well, um, Sandoval's position is that um, whether or not there's a constitutional obligation to define it, um, you can't give a, uh, an instruction which drags the jury away from the, uh, from the core concept. Uh, if it's not defined, um, it's hard to say that the, that the words proof beyond a reasonable doubt are so devoid of meaning to a reasonable juror that they're left to see. Of course, if, it, if a defendant wants a particular instruction on, wants one defined, uh, I believe that it's certainly oblig the court would be obligated to, to give it, to specify to the, the jury. You, notwithstanding the observations in... Uh, how it would violate the United States Constitution if a judge refused to give an elaboration on the meaning of the term reasonable doubt? Um, well, I would certainly argue on behalf of a client who... who well, I, I, to say you would argue yes. on behalf of a client, I, I am sure you would. Uh, but do, do you think that's what the law is? Um, there, there's no law whatsoever that, it, that says it's flatly unconstitutional not to define proof beyond a reasonable doubt. No, no question about that. Um, Cage, on the other hand, is, is clear that it's unconstitutional to, to drag the jury away from the core concept of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'd like to conclude by pointing out that under the Boyd analysis, we have to look at the record as a whole here, where here the jury's deliberating for 14 days. The likelihood that there was a compromise somewhere at the very lowest degree of certainty, consistent with the instructions that the jury could reach to get, to get consensus, um, given the weakness of the prosecution's case, the... the uh, uh, indeterminacy of the eyewitness identification, the unreliability of the informer. There's more than a reasonable likelihood here that the jury returned a verdict inconsistent with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There, there's an actual likelihood. That's more than Boyd requires. Boyd doesn't require that the petitioner prove more likely than not, just that there's a likelihood, more than a speculation. Sandoval's case, the jury was invited to take bits and pieces of the evidence, fanned by the prosecutor, to portray an image of him as a stereotypical Hispanic East Los Angeles gangster. The prosecutor argues, take a thug like this. Imagine him in the streets. He's got a mustache. He's got a different hairstyle. Um, he's wearing different clothes. That's Sandoval. That's the type of stereotypical evidence that the jury is going to use under the moral evidence rubric to supplement the, obvious, or the apparent shortfalls in the prosecution's factual objective case. What, what did Boyd read? Well, never mind. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Malthoff. Uh, General Stenberg, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please court. What is the point? Petitioner Victor's arguments underscore the problems created for the states by the Cage decision. 
defendant's counsel will pick five or six words from a jury instruction and argue that those five or six words invalidate the entire instruction. This is like a doctor who operates on a patient and upon opening the patient up sees a perfectly healthy and normal appendix, reaches in, cuts the appendix in half, and has now found a very defective appendix. We must look at the entire instruction and not simply pick out pieces that have been cut from the whole. Taken as a whole, there's nothing wrong with Nebraska's reasonable doubt jury instruction. This jury instruction was written by a distinguished committee of Nebraska uh, lawyers, judges, uh, and professors. Two of the members of the committee that wrote the Nebraska jury instruction in 1965 are now on the U.S. District Court bench in the state of Nebraska. This is an extremely good faith effort by the state of Nebraska under the direction of the Nebraska Supreme Court to explain a concept that admittedly is hard to explain and yet is a very important one. I should point out that this instruction is more widely used in Nebraska than petitioner suggests. Indeed, that is illustrated by the reply brief of the petitioner. The Nebraska Supreme Court on December 17, 1993, decided the Cook case. The Cook case was a crime committed in, 19, in February of 1992 and tried sometime later that year. The same instruction was used there that is before this court today. And that case came out of Douglas County, our state's most populous county. Under our current Nebraska Supreme Court rule, a trial judge may use either the old instruction, which is before this court today, uh, or the newer one. And the newer one leaves out moral certainty. What is the new one? The new one leaves out all of the three phrases that are questioned here, Your Honor. However, that has not protected it from assault by the defense bar. The Nebraska Supreme Court has already had to address the constitutionality of our new uh, reasonable doubt jury instruction under the Cage analysis, despite the fact that it does not contain any of the words used uh, in the Cage instruction. There are substantial precedents supporting the committee's uh, work in writing this jury instruction. Indeed, at the time Cage was decided, at least by our count, there were 28 states that used one or more of the phrases that were questioned in Cage. 23 states used the term moral certainty in their jury instruction. 16 other states, including Nebraska, used the term substantial doubt. I think it's very clear that the widespread retroactive invalidation of all of these jury instructions would create enormous difficulties in the administration of justice in over half of the states, or nearly half of the states of this United States. States would be required to go back and retry several years, perhaps five years or ten years, depending on how far we take retroactivity, of criminal jury trial. Well, why do you say uh, half, General Stenberg? Uh, do the other half of the states use instructions that would not be faulted under Cage? Well, I would say, I guess I would use the term at least, Your Honor, because as I, as I, as I pointed out, even our new instruction, which contains none of the phrases uh, that were commented upon in Cage, has been challenged. I don't know where, if the, if the Nebraska and California instructions are invalidated by this court, where the line will stop. And that's why I would suggest the word, at least, uh, suggest that at least uh, 16 or 23 or 28 states would be directly affected and possibly. But you more. said 10 years. It doesn't take 10 years to exhaust death, death, uh, direct review in all these states, does it? Well, Your Honor. Um, Let's start, at least, by looking at the Victor case to answer that question. Mr. Victor committed his crime in 1987. His trial was held in 1988. Uh, and here we are in 1994, six years later. Yeah, but we're not on direct review. I mean, his direct review was completed in 1990, wasn't it, when, when this court denied cert? 
Well, I think on the record here, it's a little unclear as to whether we're on direct review or not, Your Honor. But I would note that, that the petitioner uh, in his reply brief, Petitioner Victor in his reply brief, argues that even under the Teague standard, because this is so fundamental, because the, the reasonable doubt jury instruction is so fundamental, uh, is part of the concept of ordered liberty, that if the jury instruction is invalid, that we would have to go back under a Teague test uh, as well. And that, of course, is well, not the position you take in the If you did, it's because that was the law before. Uh, I mean, you don't, it seems to me you don't have to reach that issue. If, if, if somebody raises a Teague problem, isn't the answer to that that the that the law as announced in Cage had been announced prior to the exhaustion of direct review in this case. Well, I, I, I guess my, my response, Your Honor, would be that there's no question that we're looking at several, that, that, that obviously the retroactivity affects exactly how many cases are affected, but I don't think there's any question that we're looking at several years' worth of, of retrials if these jury instructions are broadly, uh, broadly rejected by this court. Has the defense bar been regularly objecting to all these instructions? I think since Cage, there has been a pretty general, uh, it's been a fairly standard objection to object to reasonable doubt jury instructions. Of course, prior to Cage, at least with respect to cases prior to Cage in which there, there were not objections, for example, as I understand it, we don't know and we, we couldn't possibly tell on this record whether the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Nebraska will find a complete procedural bar. They simply skipped over that issue because they thought it was easier to decide it on the merits. But if we reverse on the merits... That tells you nothing one way or the other about the existence of procedural bars with respect, for example, to those who may not have been objecting. Well, that, of course, is exactly the argument that we make in retroactivity uh, uh, in our brief, Your Honor. Turning, I guess, to some of the phrases, and I remind myself as I do this that we're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to look at these in isolation, but I guess there's no other way to talk about it. And I'll start with the term substantial doubt. Like many words in the English language, substantial has more than one meaning. Substantial uh, certainly can mean a large amount of something, such as uh, the rich woman has a substantial amount of money. But substantial has other meanings as well. For example, a Nebraskan might say, my great-grandfather and grandmother homesteaded in Nebraska, and they built a small, one-room sod house. But it was a substantial structure able to withstand the strong winds of the prairies. And so substantial has more than one meaning. It can mean something, something solid, and in fact, Uh, To turn to our dictionary, Webster's Third International Dictionary defines substantial as consisting of or constituting substance, not seeming or imaginative, not elusive. And it is that meaning which is used in the Nebraska jury instruction. And if we look at the entire sentence in which the term substantial doubt is used in our instruction, it is clear that that is what is meant. Uh, In the joint appendix on page uh, 11, that part of the instruction reads as follows, a reasonable doubt is an actual and substantial doubt reasonably arising from the evidence, from the facts or circumstances shown by the evidence, or from the lack of evidence on the part of the state, as distinguished from a doubt arising from mere possibility, from bare imagination, or from fanciful fanciful conjecture. So substantial doesn't always mean a large quantity. It can mean solid, something that is not simply imaginary. And that is the way it is used in the Nebraska jury instruction, and I think it is clear Uh, from the context. Strong probabilities language is also objected to, and I think a mere reading of the sentence in in which that language appears answers the objection. That sentence reads as follows. You may find the accused guilty upon the strong probabilities of the case, provided such probabilities are strong enough to exclude any doubt of his guilt that is reasonable. 
substantially the same language was specifically upheld in this court by this court in 1895 uh, in the Dunbar case. Finally, we turn to the moral certainty language, and the California Attorney General, I know, will discuss this uh, uh, in greater te- in greater detail. So I will try and be reasonably brief on the subject. First of all, I would note that unlike the moral certainty language in Cage, the Nebraska jury instruction specifically ties the moral certainty that the juror must feel to the evidence in the case. The instructor, the, this sentence reads as follows, It is such a doubt as will not permit you after full, fair, and impartial consideration of all the evidence to have an abiding conviction to a moral certainty of the guilt of the accused. So Nebraska carefully ties the, the moral certainty, the fact that must, that moral certainty must be felt as a result of the evidence presented uh, in the case. Secondly, I would point out that this court has long uh, approved the moral certainty language. Uh, going back to 1880, the, uh, the Miles case, uh, Perovich, uh, Wilson, and another case cited, uh, cited in our brief. Uh, the state of Nebraska and 23 other states have in good faith relied upon those holdings of this court. Uh, and it certainly uh, would be a great disservice to those states to now invalidate carefully written instructions based on this court's uh, own sentences. And certainly that should not be done uh, for any light reason. And great deference should be given to the states uh, in their decision to employ uh, this language. Do you acknowledge that the meaning of the phrase moral certainty has changed over time? I I, I do not believe so, Your Honor. uh, It was hinted at earlier here, I think. I think of the the juries of the frontier state of Nebraska in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. Most of them were illiterate. Uh, If they had been to a couple of grades, they had done well. If they had been to the eighth grade, they were considered uh, pretty well educated. Uh, I don't think that the meaning to the common people of the state of Nebraska uh, has, of moral certainty has changed uh, over the years. Have the dictionary definitions of it changed? Your Honor, I'm, I'm, I do not profess to be an expert on, on dictionaries. The, the petitioner says, says so. But I think that there, are, there is contemporary understanding also of what moral certainty means. Let us say, if we say, for example, that, that the woman who was strongly pro-life was morally certain that abortion was wrong. Morally certain is used in that context means that she was as sure as she could possibly be. And I think that's how we use moral certainty in our jury instruction. The juror has to be as sure as the juror can possibly be. And I would submit that, if anything, that is a higher standard than the law requires, because arguably that is higher than beyond a reasonable doubt. It is beyond all doubt. Unless the court has questions on the retroactivity... Uh, General, you refer to our decision in the Miles case. As I read that case, that does not set out the instruction that was given, at least in the court's opinion. Uh, Have you you gone back and read the instruction in the lower court report? The the quote I have from the Miles case, Your Honor, is found at page 309 in 103 U.S. And the quote, as I have it written here, is proof beyond a reasonable... This is from the instruction, Your Honor. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt as such as will produce an abiding conviction in the mind to a moral certainty that the fact exists that it's claimed to exist so that you feel certain it does. The court then approved this language, saying, quote, the language used in this case, however, was certainly very favorable to the, to the accused and is sustained by respectable authority. Well, you're quite right. I... 
If the court wishes, I would address retroactivity issue. Otherwise, I believe I have completed my argument. Thank you, General Stenberg. Uh, General Lundgren, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, California has an instruction on reasonable doubt which has, in a sense, stood the test of time in California. It uh, had its genesis in the Webster case from Massachusetts, uh, first appearing perhaps in the California Supreme Court uh, reports in 1860 when it commented favorably on that, uh, continuing to uh, impress it into statute form. And in 1927, the legislature, believing this instruction uh, to be uh, effective and to be accurate, uh, further enacted legislation which said that if you give this instruction in a criminal case, no other instruction on reasonable doubt uh, need be uh, given. Up to the present time, including the study that uh, Justice Scalia mentioned a moment ago uh, concerning CALJIC, our committee which reviews jury instructions and comes up with standardized jury instructions, while there is no uh, empirical evidence before this court as to how a particular juror understands this instruction, the best thing that I can direct you to is the review done by the CALJEC Committee in 1987 pursuant to a request by the legislature to look at this instruction and to judge whether or not we should maintain that instruction, give no instruction whatsoever, or give another instruction. The committee was made up of both prosecutors and defense counsel and judges, including a, a federal appellate justice. And the consensus at that time was that no change ought to be made. And of the minority report, a small minority, but of the minority report, there was no consensus as what ought to be done in its place. The reason I bring this up is that we all agree there can be no perfect way of defining reasonable doubt, I think. And yet, when one would suggest that we need a definition other than that given in California for over 100 years, I would state that they have the burden of showing that their particular answer is better than what we have in the sense that it will not have some of the same challenges that admittedly any imperfect instruction would have. Counsel for Sandoval stated it very well. There is no one true definition of reasonable doubt. This court has never found that there is one true definition of reasonable doubt. This court has never stated that there is a constitutional requirement that it be defined or has prescribed its description. Rather, this court, by not prescribing or requiring, has allowed the states to utilize their best judgment as long as they meet the standard of reasonable doubt or unreasonable doubt, uh, a reasonable doubt as uh, has been suggested constitutionally in the context of the Due Process Clause. And I would suggest that we might look at In re Winship to see what, in fact, this court believed was what was so essential to the beyond a reasonable doubt instruction or, or concept that it was incorporated into our belief of due process. In re Winship, uh, in quoting Davis, a previous uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, said, that no man should be deprived of life under the forms of law unless the jurors who try him are able upon their consciences to say that the evidence before them is sufficient to show beyond a reasonable doubt the existence of every fact necessary to constitute the crime charge. The essential uh, connection there is that the beyond a reasonable doubt standard protects the defendant 
and enforces or reinforces the obligation or burden on the state for proof, to carry the burden of proof of one's guilt. Uh, further, uh, referring to In re Winship on uh, page uh, 364, the court referred to two, uh, I would say, two definitions that I find virtually synonymous with moral certainty. That is, they talked about the subjective state of certitude, and they also spoke of the utmost certainty. I believe that if you interjected uh, those words into uh, to a moral certainty found in the California uh, instruction, they would mean virtually the same thing. At least there is no constitutionally significant difference between the expressions used by this court in In re Winship and uh, the moral certainty uh, used in the instruction in California. I believe that petitioner mistakes uh, time-worn for time-honored. Uh, in fact, this instruction has stood the test of time in California. We admit it is not the perfect instruction because there is no perfect instruction. It is important that we look at any instruction, obviously, uh, as uh, the standard uh, requires us to do in its total context. Uh, Boyd said that we could not judge uh, any instruction in artificial isolation. And if you break down what to a moral certainty means in the context of this instruction, it in no way detracts from the obligation of the state to present its case and carry its burden. In fact, I believe the most reasonable, the most likely reading of it is to say that it enhances and reinforces the obligation of the fact finder. It, in a very real sense, tells them that they are to go about their task of finding facts and then applying the law in a serious-minded fashion, much as In Ray Winship suggested that jurors must be able to say upon their consciences. That's not to say on their religious beliefs. That means to be true to themselves. That means to make a judgment that they can live with. It reinforces the concept of abiding, long-lasting. On the contrary, petitioners suggest that you take a definition of moral certainty which is contrary to the sense of certainty itself. And if you would accept or adopt uh, petitioners' definitions, you would get to some strange uh, sort of uh, senses that I have a lastingly and um, abiding sense that perhaps maybe something might be true. Uh, that just falls on its face when you uh, put it into uh, context. Uh, How about uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt? Period. Some have suggested that it is better not to have any instruction whatsoever and to just say reasonable doubt and to say uh, 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 unreasonable doubt is that doubt which is not reasonable and leave it at that. Uh, yet uh, we have found that in California at least, we have those who inquire as to that. I asked about this particular instruction, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you firmly convinced of defendant's guilt because it is the one that the Federal Judicial Center recommends, and I was surprised to see in all of the definitions in all of these briefs that it wasn't mentioned. That is not meant as a criticism uh, on our part. It is to suggest, however, that there are many constitutionally valid definitions of reasonable doubt. And that's what we're about here, to determine what is constitutionally required if there is one. In California, we have believed that it is more effective to frame it in the manner that we have making sure that we don't uh, run afoul of the problems 
articulated in Cage, chief of which I believe, at least uh, concerning the phrase reasonable doubt, was somehow it lacked what I would call an evidence connection. The reference to, uh, to uh, moral certainty in our instruction is always in the background of evidence. That is, it goes, reasonable doubt is that state of the case which, after the entire comparison and consideration of all the evidence, leaves the minds of the jurors in that condition that they cannot say they feel an abiding conviction to a moral certainty of the truth of the charge. Consistently throughout the instructions given in California, jurors are directed to evidence. There is no problem, as was suggested in Cage, that somehow they, were, they would believe that they should have um, something other than evidence, uh, that somehow this meant that this was to be put in the place of evidence. This modifies the abiding conviction. This talks about the manner of reaching, the manner about which you, the seriousness about which you go about your business. But it does nothing to interfere with a quantum of proof obligated uh, to the uh, prosecution under the Constitution. The California instruction uh, does not have the other great impediment uh, found by this court in Cage, and that is to somehow create a equivalent or substitute definition, an unadorned equivalent or substitute definition that is misleading, that being primarily in Cage, grave uncertainty. A grave uncertainty in Cage implicates to the juror that that manner, that amount of doubt necessary to acquit is more than what is constitutionally uh, permissible, or in many ways, you can look at it either from that standpoint or say, by virtue of so changing the amount of doubt necessary to acquit, you basically have shifted the burden of proof uh, from the state uh, to the defendant, and obviously that is, uh, uh, does not meet constitutional standard in any regard. At the very least, we can say that Cage uh, thereby exaggerated or overstated the doubt necessary to acquit. There is no problem like that in the California instruction uh, whatsoever. There is no, as our California Supreme Court said in viewing this in People versus Jennings, there is no transformation of true reasonable doubt as it has been traditionally defined into a higher degree of doubt. We also do not have the words actual or substantial, although I think the real problem in Cage is the context in which actual substantial were found, and again, it gave an equivalency, a rough equivalency uh, to uh, the notion of uh, reasonable doubt, uh, unadorned whatsoever. And lastly, I would say with respect to our difference between the California instruction and Cage, that moral certainty, the position of the expression moral certainty in the Cage instruction was devoid of any reference uh, to evidence. It was, all, it was an awkward appendage hanging out there that was susceptible to misinterpretation because of the context in which it found. And just as this court has suggested that we need to look at the entire instruction and then the instruction in the context of all of uh, the instructions, uh, we need to look at moral certainty as it applies um, throughout. With respect to the dictionary definitions, whether there's been a change in, in definitions, I think we would have to agree that there has been some change in definition. Uh, but Petitioner is somewhat selective in his choice of definitions. In a number of his definitions that he quoted, one of the, the uh, definitions given is virtual. <coughs> Would virtual be uh, 
virtual certainty be unconstitutional? Mr. Lundgren, can I ask you a question? Do you think, as a theoretical matter, and I'm assuming there's been some change in it, but let's assume for present purposes the change isn't enough as of today to invalidate destruction, would you agree with the thesis that at least it is conceivable that over the years the, the term could have an additional change in meaning that sooner or later it would make it unconstitutional? It could if viewed in the context of the instruction. I think that's very important. Right. The, the, the word hold means many different things. We say, uh, those of us in the law, the court held something. I don't go home and say to my children, uh, we hold you children have violated the rules of the house and therefore you're not getting allowance this week. And uh, certainly, having been through four knee surgeries, I can tell you in football, holding is not considered something positive. Uh, it depends on the context in which it's placed, and I think it is possible, certainly, that a term could change so much so that there is a sole notion of the term, so even placed in the context into which it had previously been appropriate would be inappropriate. But we are not here. I, I understand your argument. In, in that light, uh, in order to avoid the risk of further changes and the same kind of problem of retroactivity and the like, do you think California would be better off, and I guess really it's a close question for me, simply to omit the words to a moral certainty from the, from the last line of their standard charge? They'd, they'd avoid this risk of further change, and I, I don't know, frankly, whether that makes it a higher or lower burden than with or without the words, but I'm curious to know what your view is. You're asking my opinion as a practitioner. I would tell you that uh, I think more prosecutors would accept that than more defense counsel. Taking the we have made reference uh, uh, in our brief uh, to a defense manual that specifically instruct defense attorneys in criminal trials to argue to the point of moral certainty because it, it assists them. You it think the word, now, you think the words to a moral certainty enhance the burden of proof? I don't think there's any doubt about it. And if you look at the way it has been used by this court in, in many references where it was not reviewing a question of instruction, but the court attempting to express how it saw something being seriously, uh, a dissent by the uh, Chief Justice uh, in Schnebel, uh, talking about moral certainty. It didn't go to the question of moral certainty, but it advanced the cause that the decision made was a decision that was made uh, seriously and with uh, the quantum of proof necessary beyond a reasonable doubt. Could you make the same com uh, comments in the same context on the phrase moral evidence? Did the defense attorneys rely upon that in their closing argument? We've not seen the same sort of expression of, uh, of uh, interest in... Um, in that uh, phrase, and uh, frankly, I believe you pick up the, the sense of that phrase in its proper sense uh, in the context of the sentence itself, because it refers to those things of human affairs. And I don't think there is any difficulty in them understanding it. Uh, frankly, uh, I don't think most people go around talking about moral evidence, and they're probably confronted with it uh, in, uh, for the very first time uh, as jurors. And the question then is the dictionary, well, let me put it this way. I think the dictionary the jurors use are the instructions. And the question is, do these phrases that uh, petitioners suggest are somehow inadequate, so inadequate that they rise to a constitutional challenge, do they in fact mislead the juror? The standard is, is there a reasonably like likelihood they mislead the, the juror? And I would believe that as you review those, they don't. If anything, the sense of, of um, moral certainty reinforces, it adorns the obligation that someone has. Is it essential? Perhaps not. But I would suggest there are many things in the legal system that are not essential, but we believe they assist in doing our job. I think this adds to the solemnity of the obligation of the jurors. Much like when we come into a courtroom, 
judges and justices wear robes. That's not essential to decision-making, but it adds to the solemnity of the occasion. I believe the phrase, to a moral certainty, adds to the solemnity of the obligation of the jurors, and it is very difficult to understand how someone would come in and believe it does otherwise. If there are any questions... Instead of um, uh, dropping it, you might also consider the possibility of having a campaign to use the term properly instead of using it as a a, a slovenly description of 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 a... uh, something that is not at all a certainty, far from certain. Uh, would, it is often used that way, but, but it's, it's probably an incorrect use. I would also say it is important, and I believe it is important, that the California Committee, charged with the responsibility of standardized instructions, continues to review these and other instructions on a regular basis, as they do, so that we, in fact, can have the least amount of uh, difficulty with instructions before uh, our jurors. Thank you, Thank you General Lundgren. Uh, Mr. Weber, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. One of the matters that I initially would like to take exception to is, again, the emphasis uh, by the Nebraska Attorney General uh, that somehow uh, legions of individuals are going to be uh, affected. Uh, in essence, the doors of the, the prisons uh, left wide open in the state of Nebraska because of, of, of the uh, throwing out of this invalid instruction. But I believe Justice Souter recognized that this fear, as I've said before, is a gross exaggeration. I don't believe there are very many at all individuals similarly situated to the petitioner in this case, as as Mr. Stenberg, I believe, later recognized. Um, I believe there are probably only a handful of individuals that objected to this instruction on direct review, as petitioner did in this case. May I ask on that point, is the reason that the defense counsel may not have objected to the instruction the reason given by the um, California Attorney General that... uh, uh, they think putting into a moral certainty provides them with a good argument to the jury. That's a good question. I, I would take exception to the California Attorney General. I believe that uh, just the mere fact that that language happens to be uh, lectured upon within the defense ma- manuals, uh, from my perspective from the defense bar, is more of a tacit admission that we're stuck with what we've got and we've got to make some sort of, uh, w- of, some sort of headway with that language. Uh, I don't believe you'll find many defense counsel, certainly within Douglas County, Nebraska, where I practice, would concede that the moral certainty language is something that we like. Uh, indeed, uh, just submit the instruction that I referred to uh, recently, uh, or, excuse me, the instruction used now, again, uh, contained in B23 of uh, Petitioner Sandoval's brief uh, as an appendix. None of the uh, defective language, the moral certainty certainly is not contained within that instruction. Uh, and I would submit that, uh, as Mr. Stenberg noted, uh, the plaintiff's bar, uh, the state of Nebraska, as well as the defense bar, were involved in the construction and, and creation of this instruction. If, if that language were so uh, readily wanted and so defensible by the attorney general, then I would, would wonder why there wasn't some sort of stipulation that the moral certainty language would be contained within that instruction. Secondly, with respect to uh, the idea that other individuals had not raised uh, this particular issue on direct appeal, and perhaps they would, I would submit that, number one, that's not the issue in this case, but number two, it's directly uh, r- uh, addressed by the Nebraska Supreme Court in the, state, in the case of State versus Van Akron, in which, the, uh, similar to Cage, the court recognized a plain error analysis ability to review the instruction, and quite frankly, as the court noted, uh, in that uh, opinion, uh, the raising of that issue at trial, much uh, for the same reasons it wasn't raised at trial in this case, was due to the futility of raising it in light of its prior decisions, distinguishing uh, the instruction given in Nebraska from the defective instruction in Cage. 
Finally, I find it very interesting that the Attorney General concedes at the beginning that we're not supposed to parse language and look at the individual terms, and yet he spends a great deal of his time arguing about... uh, I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Weber. The case is submitted.